0: As people from the village of Collinwood started to rush to the school in a desperate attempt to save the children, a bottleneck that was formed by an architectural decision made two years earlier was causing child upon child to fall just feet from safety. The intense smoke, heat, and flames pushed back rescuers with almost supernatural force. 173 children and two adults would burn to death in a matter of minutes. In this episode, Tyler J. Thomas, Jeff Moss, and I, Tim Coleman, will tell you what led to this nightmarish inferno. This is The Three Tumblers. This is part three of the Lakeview
1: School Fire. If you have not listened to parts one and two, please pause this episode, go back, and listen to them first.
2: All attempts at accuracy have been made in producing this episode. Some details are lost to history, forever, and what is written is sometimes contradicted. A list of source material will be provided in the show notes at our website, freetumblers.com.
0: This episode contains depictions of children dying. While we have left out the more graphic details, we felt that some were necessary to tell the stories of the victims and the lessons that have been learned from this tragedy. Now, the Lakeview School Fire, part three, a village on fire. In the streets near the school there were shouts and screams as the smell of smoke drifted through the air. People literally dropped what they were doing as others rushed by yelling at them that the school was burning. 24 year old John Level is near the school and when he sees the smoke he begins running as fast as he can to try and help save the children that were still trapped. The closer he gets to the building, the heat and smoke are so intense that his eyes burn and it's hard to breathe, but he keeps running to the building's rear entrance, hoping that it's not too late. I ran to the school when I saw the smoke. The rear entrance, where the storm doors blocked up the arch, was heaped with little bodies. I seized the first children I could reach and dragged them out. Some of the children seemed half-suffocated. Some were unconscious. I did not stop to look. I seized them by the arms or legs or bodies and tossed them out behind. Andrew Dorn and Wallace Upton both live and work in the neighborhood and also run to the school. They each have children trapped inside and run to the back door as well. By the time the men are able to break free a stuck door, children are in a pile at the bottleneck of the bottom of the stairs. They are already starting to burn. Andrew finds his daughter, nine year old Gretchen, and tries desperately to pull her from the crush of children, dislocating both of her arms in the process, but still cannot free her. He is finally forced to let go as he himself is starting to burn. Wallace manages to rescue 18 children by pulling them from the heap, despite having second- and third-degree burns covering his arms. Only later does he learn that his own child was amongst the ones he managed to save. When it comes to children perishing in fires, I have a unique perspective to bring to this discussion. First, I would like to let our listeners know that neither Jeff nor Tyler has any prior knowledge of this story, so their reactions will be real and unrehearsed. It was around 1 or 2 in the morning on September 26, 2013, when I was working as a 911 dispatcher. I'd been on the job for just shy of 10 years at the time. Uh, The center that I worked for was small, and there were only two of us. My partner had only been working there for about a year and a half and had just recently gone from part-time to full-time and was assigned to work with me. He answered the 911 call before the first ring, just like I trained him, and within seconds of hearing his voice, I knew he had something that was not a normal call. Uh, Just as I started to click in to his line to monitor and assist. A second 911 call rang in, so I answered it. Uh, Quickly, it was apparent to me that my partner and I were talking with two different people on the scene of the same house fire. The woman on the end of my line kept screaming that her babies were inside the house and that it was on fire. I dispatched the fire departments and EMS within 40 seconds of my partner answering that first call. Uh, Between my partner and I, in the information that we were getting I knew that we had a two-level house that was on fire and there were children trapped inside. At the same time I was dispatching the call on the radio North Carolina State Highway Patrol trooper Greg Gentu, who was actually one of my instructors in the police academy was on patrol in the area and he saw the light from the flames and the smoke and so he decided to respond, especially once he heard my dispatch. Trooper Gentoo got there within less than 30 seconds and also determined that there were children trapped in the fire. And he tried everything that he could to get in. And I'd like to say something about Trooper Gentoo. He's a hell of a man. Uh, he's big, he is a force to be reckoned with, and he can run 10 miles and not run out of breath. I mean, he's just a, a force of, of a man. So when Trooper Gentu was unable to get into the house to rescue the children who were trapped, uh, that told me something. It told me that things were really bad. You know, firefighters and fire apparatus checked in route just within minutes of me giving out the call. And I had also alerted the fire marshals uh, to respond as well that night. The house that burned was a two level ranch style house and the basement had been converted into its own full living space. Uh, And there were two families sharing the same house. So one family lived upstairs, one lived downstairs. My partner had answered the call from the father of one family and I had answered the call from the mother of the second family and despite the brave efforts of Trooper Gentu, and responding firefighters and paramedics, an 11-year-old boy and his six-year-old sister both died in the fire. They were upstairs in separate bedrooms. One had an open door and the other had a closed door. Uh, the fire was later determined to have started in the living room upstairs, and it was accidental in nature. Hearing the screams of a mother knowing that her children were inside of a burning house is something that I will never ever forget. And I can only imagine what it sounded like around the Lakeview School on the day of that fire. With so many parents and people of the town witnessing that horror.
2: What, normally that when I was younger I, I don't think that would have hit me like it did now. As a father now with a wife and a family that's that hits man that's uh, I can't even imagine that I the, the the scariest thing that's ever happened to us as a family is uh, one of my middle child ran outside one day and was by the mailbox by the street and uh, no cars around nothing like that but it was like just that 15 seconds of terror where is my son what's going on we were, my wife was crying. Uh, I, you know, adrenaline rushing, all that. But he was okay. And uh, I can't even imagine knowing that something catastrophic is going on around you. And you're helpless with that. Yeah, God, I can't, I, man, that's, that's a, that's a hard one, Tim. I think, I appreciate you sharing that, though. That, man, that really sets it in. Yeah,
1: that's, uh awful
2: i just out of curiosity uh the 11 year old and her brother that died um was it smoke inhalation was it did, were they ever able to determine how they died
0: i i did talk with the fire marshal who investigated it uh but he is retired now and he didn't have any of his files um so we couldn't really determine that uh, he couldn't remember, and and neither could I. Uh, but most likely, in structure fires, when people die, it actually is from smoke inhalation and you know just the depletion of oxygen
2: and asphyxiation. I think I think most people agree that the I guess the two possible worst ways to go are burning to death or drowning. And uh, I just hope it was as quick and painless as possible previously
0: we mentioned that the school's fire alarm was basically just an internal alarm there were no connections to the outside including the Collinwood volunteer fire department 11 year old Oscar Panner was one of the fortunate ones to escape the school Knowing that his friends inside the building are in mortal danger, he runs to the Collinwood Fire Department to notify them of the situation. However, there is no one at the volunteer station. In fact, several of the members and horses used to pull the pumpers are miles away working on one of the village roads. To say that the Collinwood Volunteer Fire Department resources were inadequate at the time would be an understatement. The department was small, with only 20 volunteer members. Back then, just as it is today, volunteer firefighters had paying full-time jobs and sometimes could not respond to fires. Also, the horses, which presumably were property of the village, were being used for road improvement. There are precious few details on how members of the fire department were initially notified However, later testimony described news of the fire quickly spread through the residents of the town and people started rushing towards the school. The fire department's alarm, which alerted the volunteers to a fire, was rang at 9.45 a.m. Another full twenty minutes passed before firefighters arrived with their horse-drawn wagon-mounted pumpers. We could find very few details on the actual equipment that they had available, but based on equipment standards of the time, along with witness accounts, the gasoline-powered pumps barely matched home pressure washers of today. Also, in their haste, they forgot to grab an ax from the station, a mistake that would prove to be deadly. Once on the scene, the fire hoses leaked wildly and the ladder's barely reached the second floor. Rescuers were within feet of the children, yet still completely out of reach.
1: So, I have a good friend from high school who's been a longtime volunteer firefighter. He's now the captain and fire marshal. So, you know, he's there all the time. This city only has a volunteer fire department. They're not truly volunteer. They get paid when there's a call. Um, but you are correct that they get dispatched from wherever they are. He carries a pager with them everywhere. If he gets a call and he's available, he goes. I have another friend who's a full-time career firefighter, so it's a little bit different. He has worked in volunteer type of uh, agencies as well. But you know, obviously, you know, you take anything that we do today and compare it to how they did it back then, look at our trade. You know, somebody locksmithing in the 1800s wouldn't have any idea what to do today firefighting you know the equipment was extremely rudimentary but it's all they had you know they weren't equipped to handle a huge school building even probably with the biggest equipped departments and the most amount of people it probably still wouldn't have really been able to do a lot you know the city that i live in had a volunteer department for the longest time i think they went fully full-time in about 2000 they're not You know, a volunteer department there, they may or may not be fully trained. You know, the equipment's not usually the newest and best. And the response times are going to be a lot longer than a 24-7 staff station with fully trained, fully certified by the state firefighters with new vehicles, with constant education. Unfortunately, that's all they had. You know, Collinwood was not part of the city of Cleveland at that point. So it was a village with its own having to sort of sustain itself, I guess.
2: Yeah, and researching this episode, I figured out or found out that 65% of firefighters in the United States are still volunteers. So granted, you know, they're a a whole heck of a lot better than what we just heard. So I'm not trying to draw any parallels other than to say, if, if you're listening to this, you've only lived in areas that had a fire department that was paid. Most of this country still relies on volunteer firefighters. There are just under 700,000 volunteer firefighters in the United States right now. And I grew up in Atlanta my whole life, but I spent practically every summer in Western North Carolina with my grandparents up around Murphy. And the two hour drive from Atlanta to Murphy, it's just, um, I mean, non-stop volunteer fire department buildings. It's, it's almost like a, it was something we, we looked at, we counted every time we went up. My grandparents were fortunate enough that their uh, volunteer fire department was only about five miles away. I mean, that's insanely close for all intents and purposes, but especially in rural areas in the United States, it's not uncommon for them to be 20, 30 minutes away.
0: Yeah, I mean, the volunteer department that I was in uh, from my years as a teenager until early 20s, their budget was only $45,000 a year then. I mean we're talking a long time ago now, but still everybody was completely volunteer. There were no you know pay per call like Jeff was saying. Uh, there was you know trucks that were 20, 30 years old at the time and they were put into, into service every single day and everybody had to leave their jobs get up and go run and grab a truck and then respond. So, you know, the 20-minute response time for Collinwood, eh, that's still a lot compared to today, even with those departments like that. And also, as we talked about I, earlier in this series of episodes, the village directors were pretty much penny pinchers. They were tightwads. They did not want to spend any extra money anywhere— and that's the exact same scenario that my hometown is going through right now. I mean, I just read the candidate profiles for the board of aldermen for that town, and they're all wanting more funding for the fire and police department. So it's something that 115 years later, we're still dealing with. Something else that I want to mention is, you know, Oscar the 11 year old boy who ran out of the school he got burned he was not unscathed completely and he had the presence of mind not to just run outside and and fall to the ground in a panic or whatever no he had the presence of mind to run to the fire department even though they weren't there he knew where the fire department was and he knew that they could help his friends and his fellow students that were in that building. That is another young hero.
2: Not for nothing, and I was gonna ask this in the previous segment, but I guess I'll ask it now. Have either of you ever experienced any sort of serious burns? I, I don't mean just like you, you touch something hot, you got your finger burned or anything like that. Have, have either of you experienced serious burns?
1: I mean, I got a second degree burn on my hand from a hot glue gun when I was about 12 but nothing other
0: than that. I've gotten a couple second degree burns that were like less than half a square inch total. Um, So nothing major, but I've known people, actually a well-known, well-experienced firefighting instructor was on a training fire and his hands had diesel fuel on them and got ignited. And he got second and third degree burns on his hands. Um, but personally, no other than burning the end of my finger off with an electric cigarette lighter out of an old car one time and backing up too close to the propane infrared heater in our house.
2: Well, you say that, that that reminds me of the guy at work, Scotty. Uh, I had that same experience that you just described heated as well. I, I guess it's a rite of passage for some children. I I've had third degree burns on all both of my shoulders. My whole back shoulders, third-degree burns, to the point where I had to go to the hospital and had boils lanced off. And they don't give you uh, anesthesia or anything like that. No, you have to take it raw. And I was about 9 or 10 when that happened. And that, let me tell you, it's no fun getting burned. So I can't even imagine having the presence of mine. I was cowled over ugh, in pain. I, I can't imagine running out to to seek help, if anything, then now I I would be laying on the grass just beside myself in the pain. And I've got scars still today from it. My wife's got third degree burn scars on her.
0: As rescuers are trying to pull children to safety, it quickly becomes apparent what has happened to trap them inside. The students had been trained in fire drills to only use one particular exit. During these drills, they lined up and followed their teachers' instructions. But on this day, when they started coughing on smoke and feeling the heat of the flames, panic took hold. They stopped listening to their teachers and started running down the stairs instead of the fire escape or windows. The first children to reach the inner doors of both entrances were able to pass through the outside doors and escape quickly, but in the rush to get out, several children tripped or got knocked down and fell in the doorways and were trampled on by the kids behind them also trying to run for safety. The bottleneck point at the bottom of the stairs were small partitioning walls that had been constructed during the 1906 expansion in order to create more room for the increase of students to hang their heavy winter coats in. Those partitions reduced the width of the inner sets of doors at both entrances. According to testimony and drawings of the time, the partitions were about two feet wide, but they were directly in front of the bottom step. The inner doorways were comprised of two doors that were both only about 28 inches wide. That's eight inches narrower than the typical front door on any house in the United States today.
2: So, two things here. Uh, kids are wildly uncoordinated. I know that as a father and out of three. I, literally, as we were about to record this, and I'm writing my own commentary. We heard a loud thud upstairs, and my wife and I waited to hear if it was gonna be one of those crying falls or a no big deal fall. Kids trip and fall all the time. Uh, my oldest fell on the playground this week, and apparently it was one of those crying falls because the teacher texted my wife to let us know, you know hey, he's gonna come home and tell you about it. So stairs, kids, not a good mix. But that said, and point number two, I trip going down the stairs a lot life flashing before my eyes, desperately grabbing for the handrail. Um, I'm not immune to that. So I just don't like the layout of this school, especially for any elementary or middle school. The partition is, was the main culprit of loss of life here, no doubt. But even if it weren't and considering how fast this fire spread, I am sure that there would still be at least some injuries just because of those stairs. Kids would have fallen. Kids would have been trampled regardless. But I just don't like stairs being involved in an egress route for a building for kids.
0: Well, the convenience and style of the 1906 uh, renovation, instead of expanding or taking away from other rooms, they took away from the stairwell and added these partitions just so that you could have basically a place to hang up coats and put... Uh, The equivalent of backpacks, Uh, I know they didn't have backpacks then, but, you know, you have like your snow boots, you have, you know, whatever else kids took with them to school those days. And instead of taking away from, say, the teacher's lounge or putting something more in the basement or, you know, throughout the classrooms upstairs, they narrowed the bottoms of these stairs just to accommodate that. And it was really just a matter of convenience, and there was no style to it. It was just all practical building, because it saved money.
1: Yeah, like you said, these people are, even today, they're pinching pennies, trying to build things cheaper, and eventually the shortcuts catch up.
0: And unfortunately with the Lakeview School, when the kids got to that part, they're, as I discussed during the Iroquois series, the Observe, Orient, uh, Decide, and Act loop, or Uda loop, their loops are already disrupted at that point. There's smoke, there's fire, there's screaming, there are kids running, there are kids falling in front of them, there are teachers falling behind them, and so when they get to the bottom of those steps, and it's just a bottleneck, I can't even imagine what was going through their head other than, I've got to get out of here. I'm going to die. And as someone who was short and skinny as a kid, I'm still short as an adult, but, you know, being the runt of all the neighborhood kids, it was, you get bumped into and knocked around all the time. Yeah, you kind of grow out of it. You learn how to deal with it. But imagine being six years old. You know, my boss's grandkids are four and six years old and they come to the shop all the time. And I look and I'm like, geez, they they are just so small. And I can't imagine hundreds of them running for their lives through a tiny little door that is narrower than the door on my front house. It's just ridiculous.
2: Yeah. And even in the best of circumstances, trust me, even in the best of circumstances, kids don't listen or uh, they can't have any sort of direction. So yeah, we know that there were teachers there and and they saved, especially on the first floor, uh, a lot of students before the fire got too overwhelming in that one particular area, but uh, adults panic. But we have maturity, we have wisdom, we have experience, not necessarily in fires, but just dealing with adverse situations. And these kids have none of that. They've only been alive long enough to learn to walk, learn to read at that. So this is just, it's not good. And
0: furthermore, like we were talking about last time is that they're only trained to go one way out of the fire. And I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit more but even even younger kids, I've noticed that, and Tyler, you being a father, you can tell me uh, better, but I've noticed that with younger kids, if you get them in a routine to follow one way, they will always follow that one way. So that's what they were doing on the day of this fire. They were trying to follow the one way that they have been taught.
2: Yep, you're exactly right, because the best parenting lesson I ever got is get your kids on a routine. And when you disrupt the routine, they don't like it. You gotta go to bed every night at nine o'clock. You stay up past 10.30, they're waking up or they're expecting it the next night. The fact that there's only one way out, you know, we've learned from that. Now we've got multiple routes out when we were in school, Jeff and I. But you've gotta get them on a routine. And then when you disrupt that routine, they don't know how to function because they're only used to one thing. Now, us as adults, we meet adversity, we can you know, compensate, we can adjust to it. But, you know, we're 36, 37 years old. We've got all that years of, of experience and wisdom. They don't, they don't know how to adjust to this. And I, frankly, at 36, if I'm in a fire like this, I don't know if I could adjust to it.
0: With the most intense flames at the front main entrance to the building, and the bottleneck at the rear doors, there was yet another obstacle preventing escape. On the top of the right side door was a chain pull bolt. Basically, this is a spring loaded bolt mounted to the top of the door that, when engaged, locks a steel bolt into a strike or hole in the door frame. To release the bolt, you pull a short chain attached to the bottom of the device. And it retracts the bolt allowing the door to open mr fritz hurter the school's janitor and custodian in a heroic effort makes his way to that door and releases the chain pull bolt allowing some children a chance at escape and rescue a telegraph message was sent to cleveland saying quote send help collinwood school is burning Cleveland Fire Chief Wallace receives the message and immediately dispatches Engine Company 30 as well as a truck company to the school under the command of Battalion Chief Fallon. Their first equipment to arrive on the scene was an engine, a hose cart, and an auxiliary truck. Although the Collinwood Fire Department members forgot to grab their axe from the station, as well as their ladders being too short. Cleveland firefighters had axes and taller ladders, though the fire had progressed so quickly they were all but useless. The second floor is burned so badly it collapses down into the first floor and then both fall to the basement in a bed of scorching flames and embers. Some of the Cleveland firefighters set up the ladders that could reach the third floor of the Lakeview School and actually managed to save several children. However, the yellow pine timbers that held up the fifth grade classrooms finally burned through so much that this floor falls to the basement, killing the remaining students that were trying to be rescued.
1: So this would be sort of like a front-runner, you know, now they have pretty much automatic mutual aid. When something bad happens in your city, they they're already dispatching the next city before we went live i was listening on my police scanner there was an electrical fire at one of the synagogues and as they were aging university heights fire department they were automatically having beachwood show up and then once that happens and they got there and it was a working fire then they called more more of the other suburbs to come help you know, not having an axe with you would be like the equivalent of uh, going to work without a screwdriver. You know, it's like the most basic tool of your profession. I could understand the ladders not being long enough because it's a bigger build. Probably, it was probably the largest building that they had in that area. I'm guessing. Um, not that that's an excuse, but uh, now they would just buy the buy the tallest ladder truck they can find. It's scary, and the help probably arrived kind of late, even if they would have had the axe and the taller ladders when they got there it it probably wouldn't have made a huge difference because these guys are responding from wherever they're
2: at yeah and that's kind of what's really pissing me off as i'm hearing this is that minutes maybe seconds away from rescue and the third floor collapses so if the horses aren't being used elsewhere or any of these other failures don't happen that we just discussed They should have been able to rescue everybody on that third floor that was still alive at this point. But they didn't.
0: Which is why I think that the woman who managed to go to the telegraph office and send the message to Cleveland for their fire department, she was another, yet another hero out of this whole story. I mean, this whole thing with the third floor, that combines two of my greatest fears in life. My biggest fear is falling and like physically falling. And second biggest fear is getting trapped in a fire and being burned to death. Even though I've been in fires before with protective gear and oxygen, I would not want to be in a fire without it. And also on top of the right side door, the chain pole latch that I mean, today you would think that that would just be completely ridiculous for anybody to ever want. Yet about four months ago, a customer of ours, it was a private school, they wanted to increase the security of their school and wanted me to install deadbolts not mounted at the regular height and location on the door, but mounted on doors, double doors to the gym, equipped with surface mount vertical rod exit devices They wanted deadbolts mounted at the tops of those doors. And I looked at the maintenance man and I said, you cannot do that. And I said, even if you get the fire marshal to approve it, I will not install it. You can find another locksmith to do that. And he's like, well, why? I said, you're six foot four. I said, you can easily reach that. You have teachers and students, though, who are shorter than I am at five, seven. And they're not going to be able to reach that to secure the building in the first place. And second, they're not going to be able to reach it to unsecure these doors in the event of an emergency. So no, you are completely trapping these students, these kids, these teachers inside of this gymnasium. You should not even be thinking about doing this. If you want a way to quickly secure the doors, we can sell you... Uh, dogging keys that are designed to mount in the exit devices and remain there permanently, so that in the event that you need to do a lockdown, all anyone has to do is turn those dogging devices, and the push pads pop right out, and your gym's secure. And his answer was, "Well, but there are so many keys to the gym." And I said, "Then that's a completely separate problem." I said, if you're worried about somebody who has keys to the gym coming through here shooting up students, you've got bigger problems than me telling you no about mounting deadbolts on the tops of these doors.
1: We get, you know, usually a little old lady who wants one of those chain locks for the inside of the apartment door so that, you know, the maintenance guy can't get in and we don't sell them anymore. Go buy one at Home Depot if you're that. And they make it with a key as well, which I remember when I was a kid, my grandparents had the little chain thing, but... You just slide the thing out. It's easy, but if you had to fumble for a key, you know, to get out of your only door, not a good idea. And, you know, we are frequently telling people things that they, you know, we've been having issues with some neighbors in our strip with ventilation and other things, and the fire department came and sighted them. Like, they can shut your business down. So, you know, if there's something that you see out there or somebody's doing something you know, yeah you directly can't stop them but you can certainly report it to the proper authorities
2: I remember uh, within this last year we had a, a bank, one of our bank customers out of state, we were using a subcontractor and their quote solution was to install one of these chain bolts and that's when I learned that they still exist and all of that, and they said, we're going to put this on here, and I said, uh, absolutely not. No. Never. We'll, we'll find something else, or they're just going to have to deal with the circumstances. But, uh, I mean, if, if you've never, if you're listening, you've never heard of a chain bolt, basically what it is, is if you can imagine links and links of chain, not like a, you know...
1: The one I'm thinking of is just like a uh, you know, mount on the inside of the door with like four screws. They buy like national hardware, they're brass.
2: Right, and they have uh, like a key ring. That's what's pulling it down. So number one, that doesn't meet ADA. But number two, you've got to be tall enough to grab it and pull down. Which, like Tim's saying, you don't have to be six foot four. You don't even have to be five foot four. But if you're three feet four as a child, you can't get that.
0: I mean, we couldn't find the measurements on this door. I looked, and and I think you looked, Tyler, as well. So we don't know how tall these doors were. But you think if they're a, a you know eighty-three inch door, that's still kind of a reach for somebody who's my height. I mean, you you kind of got to step up. It's really funny watching me work on door closers on you know those sides of doors. But at the same time, you think that there are kids who are who are shorter than I am. And back then, adults were shorter in general here in America. So yeah, if you have one of those chain poles, then you have to reach for it. You have to pull it. You have to know that it's there in the first place. As grieving parents arrived at the scene, firefighters and volunteers began pulling bodies from the rubble. Local ambulances, such as they were at the time, transported victims that were still alive to doctors and hospitals. A makeshift morgue was set up in a railroad shop and held 162 bodies within the first five hours. 8-year-old Glenn Barber had realized that he would not escape through the stairs and made the decision to jump from the second story. Although he was alive after jumping, he died from injuries due to the fall just three days later. Some of the bodies were so badly burned that identification had to be made from articles of clothing by the parents themselves. The mother of Niles and Tommy Thompson could only identify the boys by their shoes. One account shared that a little girl was identified by her parents only after the family dog laid down and curled up beside her body. 21 bodies were burned beyond recognition and were never identified.
2: Tim, just in your research, were the 21 bodies Parents were available. In other words, they, they they had children that were missing and it was just, they didn't know which were which, but they all had claims to them, so to speak. They, they had parents that knew that they were their parents. They just didn't know which ones.
0: Yeah. The 21 unidentified bodies were just burned and mangled so badly from the fire And whatever rescue efforts may have taken place that there was just no visual recognition. My clothes were burned completely off. Hair was burned. Uh, About the only thing that they might have been able to determine would be gender. Um, I mean, when bodies get burned, they go through just this complete change uh, you see posturing the the skin and hair is gone in a lot of places and muscles contract bones actually tend to snap sometimes and so what you see just is not anything that you could recognize. Today we have dental records we have DNA, testing so we are much further along today in being able to identify the deceased from incidents like this but back then it was visual recognition pieces of clothing hair you know did a mother braid her daughter's hair in a certain way did you know Tommy and Niles Thompson their mother recognized their bodies by the shoes that were left on that was it
2: That, um, yeah, that, that hits close to home because, um, God forbid, if, if that were to ever happen to our family, uh, my wife takes exceptional pride with how she dresses them and their shoes, and she knows exactly what their shoes are, and she gets upset when they get them dirty. But um, that is, God, that is very sad because my wife, she could identify by that. That's so that, God, that's, mm.
0: Even as the firefighters and heroes of the village of Collinwood were still pulling the small, burned bodies of victims from the rubble, the investigation began. None of the people wanted anyone to suffer this type of horrible loss in the future, but all wanted justice for the young lives that had been lost.
1: Next time on the three tumblers.
2: It's gotta be the pipes, the steam pipes. That fire once
0: started in the basement could go floor to floor to floor.
1: Perfect storm of bad construction.
0: Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. Find this episode and others, along with source material, at 3tumblers.com. This has been a 3tumblers production. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved.